Based on the song that we just sung, can any of you guess what passage of scripture we're going to be looking at here this morning? Anyone have any idea? You're right, David and Goliath. No. We're going to be in Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4 this morning and looking at verses 35 through verse 41. Mark chapter 4, 35 through 41 in a sermon that I've titled, The Fear of of holiness, the fear of holiness. Some of you may have recognized that Pastor Sam is not here this morning. Uh, Pastor Goodell had a, a difficult week. He spent the majority of the week in the hospital. Uh, he is home. Uh, he is on oxygen in need of a lot of prayer. And so Pastor Sam is filling in for him this morning. He is going to be, Pastor Sam is going to be down here with, with us again this evening. He's going to be preaching tonight. Um, we, my family and I, will not be here tonight. We are going to be away. Uh, we're going to be leaving for a vacation this afternoon, and we'll be getting back in town on Friday. So we do certainly covet your prayers. So we're going to be away for a good portion of this week. Um, again, we won't be here tonight, but Pastor Sam will be here tonight, and he'll be bringing uh, the message that God has laid on his heart. So be keeping him in prayer. Mark chapter 4. This evening, in a moment, we'll look at verses 35 through verse 41, and it is the account of Jesus rebuking the wind, and those words that we sung, Master, carest thou not that we perish, are literally taken from Mark chapter 4 and verse number 38, and we'll touch on those words in just a few moments. I, messaged that, I mentioned that the message this morning is titled, The Fear of Holiness. We've been looking at the holiness of God for the last several weeks. I'd like to continue on that theme for a little while longer. Whenever we behold the presence of God, something changes. People are never the same when they are confronted with the holy presence and the majesty of God. In the passage that we'll be looking at here this morning, the disciples would encounter the majesty of God, the power of God like they have never seen before, and they would forever be changed men. Mark describes the scene for us, and the way that he does makes you feel like you're reading a storybook where something crazy is happening. Uh, we, we've probably all read the story that began with the words, and there's probably a million stories that begin with these words. It was a dark and stormy night. It sets the table for us, and usually when those words start the story, you know something crazy is about to happen. It's never, you know, something exciting or something thrilling. It's usually something intense is about to happen. It was a dark and stormy night. You know that things are about to get interesting. So you sit up in your chair, you, you really begin to focus on what is coming next. And Mark begins this account in, in nearly similar fashion here in Mark chapter 4, even though the storm hadn't arisen yet. Look at verse number 35 to see how the story begins. And the same day when the even was come, he saith unto them, let us pass over unto the other side. So a little bit of context here. If you look at the earlier portions of Mark chapter 4, you find that Jesus had been teaching all day on the shore of the Sea of Galilee to multitudes of people who had come to gather to hear him preach. Uh, those who have been to Israel, you know that the Sea of Galilee has some very unique features. One being that it's, it's almost surrounded entirely by mountains and it it, it sits up in an elevated position, but the sea itself is almost like a giant bowl uh, that is surrounded by these mountains. And, and being that it's in that very unique geographical location, the topography 
aids to the unpredictable and sudden weather changes that are seen upon the sea. Several of the disciples were professional fishermen who knew the unpredictability of the Sea of Galilee and they had been exposed to some really strange quirks of nature, seemingly out of nowhere. It could be a beautiful day with nothing in sight as far as extreme weather is concerned. Seemingly out of nowhere, violent winds would come and sweep across the surface of the water as if it's just blowing through a, a funnel. And these sudden winds can quickly turn a tranquil lake into a raging tempest in a matter of a few moments. Even with today's technology and today's equipment, people still refuse to sail on the Sea of Galilee for fear of perishing at the wrath of the lake's violent moods. Because it's, it's almost like that. It's almost violent moves that it has that are so unpredictable that anything could happen in a matter of a few moments. But on this day, here in Mark chapter 4, the disciples had a couple of things in their favor. They were skilled fishermen. Many of them had grown up on the Sea of Galilee. They, they knew it better than they knew the back of their hands. They didn't have any trouble managing and navigating throughout the sea. And on top of that, they had the Lord of all creation in the ship with them. And in verse number 35, when Jesus suggested that they cross over the sea, even though evening was come, the Bible starts off by telling us, they felt safe enough to do so. It was only evening. It wasn't the dark and stormy night. It would soon become, so they had no reason to fear. Of course, if it started off dark and stormy, then they probably wouldn't have ventured to get into the boat, but it wasn't the stormy night yet. So they followed Jesus' instructions, and they prepared several ships, and they all set sail. And notice what it says in verse number 36. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was in the ship, and there were also with him other little ships. So it may have been evening, making it a little bit harder to see. But again, these fishermen, they knew the Sea of Galilee so well that whether it was evening or morning, they knew they had no trouble navigating where they needed to go. But that is when everything changed. That is when the unpredictability of the Sea of Galilee took over. Notice that the dark night quickly became dark and stormy. Verse number 37. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. Now this is what every fisherman feared the most when they were out at sea. Even as skilled as these fishermen were, they knew they were no match for the violent winds and the waves of the sea. The unpredictable nature of the Sea of Galilee was about to get the best of them. The Bible tells us that the, the waves beat against the ship, filling the ship with water to the point that they, were, uh, they would soon sink. And these skilled fishermen who again made their living here, they, they knew these waters, they were out of their element. They were in over their heads. There was no getting control of the ship. They knew there was no way out of the situation because even if they didn't go down with the ship, no swimmer was strong enough to be able to swim to safety in the midst of such a violent storm. And as they frantically tried everything to keep control of the ship, Jesus slept soundly in the hinder part of the ship. After all, it had been a long day of him preaching on the seashore to multitudes of people. He just needed some rest. Some people can sleep through absolutely anything. I grew up in Southern California, and we would have occasional earthquakes. 
my brother would have to violently shake me to wake me up as an earthquake was going on because I slept like a log. I would sleep through anything. We had a bunk bed and I had the top bunk and my older brother, whenever there was an earthquake, which happened more frequently than what you would think, he would violently be shaking me to try and wake me up so that we could both take cover. And I was there just, you know, dreaming that something was going on that was shaking me. Little did I know that the earth was shaking and my brother was also shaking me. But I was just such a sound sleeper that I could sleep through just about anything. While everyone else was in a panic, I slept like a baby with my head on my pillow. I remember when I was in high school, I would sleep like a rock to the point where I would set an alarm clock just within a foot of my head on the nightstand next to my bed. I knew that I had to have something so close to wake me up if I needed to get up for anything. And even then, it would go off in the morning when I set it to go off and it would, be, it would be just blaring. And my brother and I shared a room then too. And it would just eh, 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 doing this. And I'm dreaming that a big truck is backing up. Or I'm dreaming that there's a, a large bird outside my window that just won't stop squawking. I'm just trying to get some sleep for crying out loud. And it would continue. The alarm clock would just continue going off a foot from my head. My brother would wake up in the meantime. He'd be absolutely furious with me that it woke him up. And I'm still sound asleep. And so he would, you know, rip the plug out of the wall and he'd wake me up and yell at me a little bit, um, shake me and just be furious with me that my alarm clock woke him up. Now, verse 38 tells us about the storm raging on the Sea of Galilee, the disciples struggling to keep the ship from sinking and Jesus sound asleep while all of this is going on. Notice what it says. And he, speaking of Christ, was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto them, Master, carest thou not that we perish? The disciples don't even know what to think at this point. They were fearful. They were annoyed. They were agitated and a little frustrated that Jesus could be sleeping at a time when their lives were literally hanging in the balance. I imagine that they probably woke Jesus the same way that my brother would have woken me. It wasn't just, um, hey, master, would you mind maybe waking up? Things are a little tense up here. Maybe you could lend a hand. No, no, where is he? We need all hands on deck. And they go down there and they're shaking him. This really moves. They're shaking him and they're violently trying to get him to wake up. They knew that they were going to need some help. None of them knew what Jesus would do. None of them considered that he could actually calm the storm as we'll see him do. But they woke him because they feared that they were all going to die. And they figured they needed everyone to help out to have any sort of chance of survival. The, the waves were getting bigger and bigger. The ship was filling with more water. As time passed, they were exhausted from trying to keep the boat afloat this long. And they knew they were going to need some help if they were ever expecting to make it out of the situation alive. They knew that even with an extra pair of hands, they're probably still going to drown. But they didn't know what else to do. When people are in danger and have no idea what to do, they will immediately look to their leader. These men knew the Sea of Galilee extremely well. They had even spent more time on the sea than Jesus did. 
But in this moment of peril, they're looking to Jesus for help. It is the job of any good leader to have an answer for every situation, even if he doesn't know what to do. And even if there is nothing left to do, he is expected to have an answer. Good leaders are looked upon to instill courage in those who follow them, especially when the situation appears to be hopeless. So when these disciples awake Jesus in verse number 38, they asked him a question, which question was, was less of a question and more of an accusation. Notice again what it says in verse number 38. And he was in the hinder part of the ship asleep on a pillow, and they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Now there is a question mark at the end of that, but this is really more of an accusation than anything else. What they're really looking for is not an answer. They're not looking for him to say, oh, of course I care. I'm going to go back to sleep if that's okay with you. No, they're not looking for him to answer. What they're saying is, don't you care? They're not saying, don't you care? They're saying, you don't even care that we're all about to die. That's what they're saying. They're accusing the Son of God with a lack of compassion. What's interesting is that this accusation hurled at Jesus on this specific day is consistent with the customary mindset of man towards God in general. This is something that we say to God over and over, whether we realize it or not. Master, carest thou not that we perish, but what we're really saying is, God, you don't care about what I'm going through. God, you don't care about my situation. God, you don't care what I'm facing today. You don't care about the fact that I'm dealing with this or that and all these things that are going on in my life. God, don't you care? Now, we, we put it in a question to make the accusation not sound as bad, but what we're really doing is saying, God, you don't care. You don't care. Do you know how often God hears complaints from ungrateful, unthankful, and unappreciative people every single day. God is bombarded with accusation upon accusation of being cruel, of having no compassion, of being unloving, of not caring, of being completely unattached and completely indifferent, as if God has already not done enough for us to prove His love and compassion for us. He is bombarded with these accusations every single day from people who know better, from people who know that God has been far too good to us than what we ever deserve. Yet we're so unappreciative, and yet we accuse God of being uncompassionate and unloving. It is completely ridiculous accusation, but as we see, it's really nothing new. What I love about this passage is that there is no record of Jesus answering that question. There's no, there's no record of him saying, well, let's think about this, whether or not I care that we all perish. Let's think about what I've already demonstrated to you over the last several years. Let's think about how I've already proved to you the compassion that I have for not just you, but for everyone. Let's really dive into this. Do you have a few moments? No. He doesn't even deal with that right then. At least not verbally. Rather than speaking to them, Jesus jumps right into action and he saves his words for the raging seas. Notice what he says in verse number 39. And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Immediately the seas are calm. And now Jesus turns to the disciples. And notice what he says in verse 40. And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it 
that ye have no faith. This is one of the most unbelievable passages of Scripture, one where Jesus' deity is seen on full display. The disciples witnessed something truly miraculous on this evening, and their lives would never be the same going forward. This is a story that is very familiar to all of us because we've all heard about how Jesus calmed the storm. Those three words have become so familiar to us, peace, be still. That even when they're spoken in some other context, we immediately know where they're quoted from. Jesus said that on the Sea of Galilee, peace, be still. What's interesting is that this is one of the many miracles of Christ. And every miracle is significant, but this is truly one of the most astonishing miracles. We often breeze right through this account in verse 35 down to verse 41, and then we jump right into Mark chapter 5 without even so much thinking about what really happened here on that night. Without fully considering what we've just read, the storm that was raging on the Sea of Galilee that day was not just a passing rain cloud that quickly came and passed through. This was a massive storm that had the disciples scared for their lives. And what is incredible is that the very moment that Christ spoke those three words, peace be still, the sea was still. It's not that the sea and the storm began to settle down. It went from being violent and angry and just out of control to a tranquil and peaceful lake as quickly as he could say those words or snap his fingers. Peace be still. And it wasn't as if, you know, the, the storm clouds suddenly started to disappear. No, it went just in a matter of a moment. It changed completely. As quickly as you can flip a switch and turn the light on is as quickly as the sea and the storm was calm there that day. It all happened in an instant. Because the wind and the waves recognized the voice of their creator. The sea heard the command of its Lord. Instantly, everything calmed to the point that not even the slightest breeze could be felt in the air. Not even the slightest ripple was present in that water. It's amazing how nature responds in obedience to God's word and to the command of Christ faster than human beings do. As the scene, as the scene shifts from impending death to peace and safety, notice the response of the disciples in verse number 41. And they feared exceedingly. Now this, we, we must be misreading. Right? Because... They were terrified at first. That's when they went and woke up Jesus in verse number 38. Master, care us not that we perish. We're all about to die. Don't you care? You don't care. He calms everything. And then the next three words we read, or four words we read, and they feared exceedingly. Did I miss something here? The storm was over, right? Peace be still, verse 39. And this, the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Completely at peace. What was not just, you know, certain death has now absolute peace. And then we read, and they feared exceedingly. They feared exceedingly. But read on. And said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Those first four words seem to be completely out of place. It's almost as if they appear four verses too late. That, that should have been read before he calmed the seas. 
Because what we should have read after the seas were calmed is they rejoiced exceedingly. They praised him exceedingly. They jumped up and down and did backflips because they were so thrilled, thinking that they were absolutely going to die to now knowing that they're going to live. But instead, what we read is that they feared exceedingly. They feared exceedingly. They were fearful of losing their lives in the storm. But Jesus speaking three words and instantly calming the storm caused them to be more fearful than when they were before the storm had been calmed. And this is what we call the fear of holiness. The fear of holiness. For in the power of Christ, the disciples witnessed something that frightened them more than any force of nature could ever frighten them. The words that the disciples spoke after Jesus calmed the sea were very revealing. Again, in verse number 41, they say one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? That caused them to be more fearful than anything else. What manner of man is this? They were trying to figure out what kind of person Jesus was. What type of classification Jesus would fit into. But as they processed everything that they just witnessed, they quickly realized that Jesus was in a class all by himself. And thus the question, what manner of man is this? In other words, they're acknowledging that there is something so significant about Jesus that makes him greater, more powerful, more excellent, more majestic than anyone they've ever seen before. And interestingly enough, Jesus had done many miracles up to this point. This wasn't the first miracle that they had witnessed and the first miracle that he had done, and they say, wow, this is unbelievable. What manner of man is this? They've seen multiple miracles up to this point. If you go back and beginning at Mark chapter 1, and you start reading until you get to where we are here in Mark chapter 4, you, you've seen many miracles take place. This wasn't the first thing. We read about him. Uh, we, we, we read about Jesus casting out unclean spirits. We read about Jesus cleansing those who were diseased and cleansing lepers, healing a man with a withered hand, among other miraculous acts, many of which these same disciples would have personally witnessed. And yet on this occasion, out on the Sea of Galilee, they feared exceedingly witnessing Christ do another miracle, calming the storm. When my brother would shake me to wake me up to take cover during an earthquake, I wouldn't wake up and rebuke the earth and say, peace be still. I don't have that kind of power. Sorry. I jumped out of bed and I would run for cover. Because the manner of man in which I am is a lowly creature who possesses no authority whatsoever over nature and over creation. Jesus is so much different. Jesus is the supreme authority over absolutely everything. He is infinitely greater than, than everything. In some ways, Jesus was a mysterious stranger to the disciples because they had never seen anyone like him before. They couldn't figure him out. He was known to them. They'd been by his side. They'd heard him teach. They'd fellowship with him. But at the same time, they're looking at them and they're thinking, who is this guy? How could he do what we're watching him do? Things haven't changed much in 2,000 years. 
For we sit here today with the completed word of God before us, and we still know so little about him. In many ways, God is a mysterious stranger to us. He has made it so that he, he can be personally known. We can personally know him. But there are so many things that we just don't know about him. Everything we don't know about him is what makes us uncomfortable. It's what makes us fearful, as it did the disciples that day on the Sea of Galilee. There may have been quite a bit the disciples didn't know about Jesus, but one thing was clear. Jesus was not like any of them. That was evident. Jesus was not like any of those disciples. What caused fear to overcome them was the fact that Jesus, in a more personal way than ever before, showed them that he indeed is God. You see, up to that point, all the miracles that you can read about in the first four chapters of the book of Mark, all of those miracles were done to other people. None of them really hit home for the disciples. Jesus had healed strangers who were diseased and suffered from various sicknesses. He, he even healed Simon's mother-in-law, which, okay, that's hitting close to home, but that's not, not hitting super close to home. Nothing had been done to them personally. None of them had been personally in need of a miracle done to them. They'd been witness to Jesus healing other people. But as far as them personally being afflicted, where they needed a healing touch, where they needed a miraculous hand of God to be upon them, it hadn't happened yet. Not until this day, when they're all fearing for their lives on the Sea of Galilee, when the storm was raging. There is a, a big, big difference when something happens in your life as opposed to something happening in someone else's life. There's more urgency in your prayer when you're praying for a need that you're dealing with as opposed to a need that someone else is dealing with. Think about it with me. You know, we, we take prayer requests on, on Wednesdays and we take time to pray over all the needs that we have. But I promise you, that even if we're better about it at some points, the majority of the time that we pray, we are praying more urgently, we are praying more fervently when we're praying for a personal need as opposed to someone else's need. That's not to say that we're not praying for other, other people's needs. But when you're the one who's personally afflicted, you're dealing with it every single day. You're waking up. Knee pain is still there. Neck pain is still bothering me. Cancer diagnosis, I'm still living with it. Whatever it may be, you're living with it every single day and you're reminded of it every single day. Whereas if you had a prayer request that was shared about someone else, you're not necessarily reminded about it every second of every single day. You may pray about it every day. But it's not as urgent, it's not as fervent of a prayer as opposed to when it is a personal prayer. That's what these disciples had seen. They had seen many people have the healing touch from Christ. They had seen miracle upon miracle all the way up to Mark chapter 4 and verse number 35. And now it's something that is personally afflicting them. Now they're the ones who need a miraculous intervention from Christ. Now they're the ones who need to be spared. And so that cry in verse number 38, that urgency is so much different than what they've ever experienced before. They're crying out to him in a way that they've never cried out. There is urgency within them that has never been present before because it is different now than it has ever been. Be honest about it. 
We offer up prayer requests. We pass out a prayer list. We do make it a point to pray regularly, but we don't pray as fervently, as consistently for others as we do for ourselves. That's not to say that we're not praying. But when you're the one who's afflicted, you're reminded of it throughout the day. You're living it. And therefore, you're led to pray about it. You're led to go to God about it a lot more for your personal need than you are for the need of someone else that's around you. The disciples had seen Jesus heal all, all other people who had been afflicted, cleansing from sickness, cleansing people from disease. But this specific day, they were the ones who were in need. It wasn't just that it was hitting close to home. It was hitting them. It was hitting them personally. There was an urgency in them that had never been seen before. Never been seen before. What they cried out in verse number 38 had never been cried out before. They had never had that kind of urgency before. And when they watched him rebuke the sea and instantly change their circumstances, it hit them like a two-by-four across the head. This man is God. This man is God. All the other miracles that Jesus had done, that they had witnessed, only God could do. But it didn't phase them the same way because they weren't the ones afflicted and receiving the healing or the miracle upon them. It was as if this miracle... From all the other miracles that had been done to other people, but this miracle, because it was done to them, opened their eyes to see the holiness and the majesty and the power of God. And that terrified them. It terrified them. A fear came over them, as verse 41 says. They feared exceedingly. A fear came over them. When they realized whose presence they were in. Because now it's all clicking. Hold on a second. Who is this man? We've seen him do miracles that only God can do, but now it was done for us. Who is this man? They just can't figure it out how awesome it is to be in the presence of God. This was no mortal man. The Son of God was in their midst, and they suddenly realized their creatureliness in the presence of the Almighty Creator. You see a similar reaction from the Apostle Peter in Luke chapter 5. In that account in Luke chapter 5, the disciples had been out fishing all night and caught nothing at all. Jesus gets in the boat with Peter, and he instructs him to, to push off from shore a little bit and to drop down the nets. And, and Peter says, listen, I appreciate what you're doing. I'm the skilled fisherman here in the boat. I know these waters better than you do. We've been out this all night. We've got nothing. The fish, they're just not biting today. I'll regroup and come back tomorrow. Not going to happen. Jesus insists. He goes, oh, all right. You don't know anything about fishing, but I'll lower down one net. And we know the story. He lowers down one net and to the point tries to pull it up to the point where the net is so full of fish that it's breaking. The boat can't contain the haul. They need to call another ship to come and two boats are now sinking because of how many fish have just been brought up. And what does Peter do? Do you know what he does there? 
In verse number 5 of Luke chapter 5, or uh, I'm sorry, verse number 8 of Luke chapter 5, it says, When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You see, it was at that moment that Peter realized that he was not in the presence of a mere mortal man, but the Almighty God. Peter was afraid. He was uncomfortable because he felt completely inadequate in the presence of Jesus. A normally proud, boastful person, Peter, was made to feel less than an inch tall in the presence of the Son of God. All throughout the life and ministry of Christ, you have people who who push their way through the crowd to get closer to Jesus. You have ten lepers who cry out to Jesus to come to them and to have mercy on them. You have the woman who, who finds her way and weaves her way through the crowd to just touch the hem of his garment as he's passing by to cure her from the issue of blood that she had. You have Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening intently as he taught. And then you have Peter here in Luke chapter 5 doing the exact opposite. He's calling for Christ to get away from him, to leave his presence. Why? Well, the answer is quite simple. And Peter tells us in Luke chapter 5, verse number 8, he says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. It was in that moment that Peter realized the depth of his sin and the holiness of the one whose presence he was in. Peter felt like Isaiah did in the temple. In Isaiah chapter 6, he felt completely undone. When Isaiah saw the glory of God there in the temple, it just, he felt like he just unraveled. If, if he was all stitched together, all the stitchings came out and he just, I wish I could demonstrate that for you. I would just fall limp and fall. I don't want to do that. I'd probably hurt myself. But this is how he felt. This is how Peter felt when, when, when he encounters Jesus there where Jesus says, lower the nets and he does and he, brings up more fish than he could ever imagine. He realizes this is no mortal man. This is no ordinary person. This man, I thought, knew nothing about fishing. And not only does he know everything about fishing, he knows everything about everything because he's not just a man. He's the son of God. And he realizes how worthless Peter is to be in the presence of this man who's not a man but God in flesh. And so he says, I don't deserve to be in your presence. I don't deserve to be anywhere near you. He didn't know everything there was to know about Christ, but he knew enough about Christ in that moment to know that Christ was infinitely greater than he would ever be. On the Sea of Galilee, here in Mark chapter 4, the disciples asked the question, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? They didn't even have an answer to that question because Jesus didn't fit into any earthly category or classification that they could think of, and that is what terrified them. Because if Jesus didn't fit into any earthly category or into some earthly classification, that meant that Jesus was so much more than just an ordinary man. Jesus may no longer be walking on this earth as he did in the New Testament days. We may not have interactions with him like the disciples were able to there on the Sea of Galilee, like Peter did at the miraculous catch of fish that he had, but the incredible power of God's holiness is still felt, and it still brings on a fear of that holiness. Sometimes the power of his holiness is even transferred to people. 
When Moses talked with God upon Mount Sinai, do you remember when he returned from that mountain and what happened? His face was glowing as he had seen the presence of God so much that the people were terrified to even look at Moses. And they asked him and begged for him to to veil his face, to cover it so that the glory of God that was emanating from him wouldn't be seen. The same reaction is seen today when people get uncomfortable and uneasy around Christians. I I could be having a perfectly normal conversation with someone until they ask me what I do. And I say, I'm a pastor. Oh, you should see the way people change about what what they're doing, how they're talking. Suddenly the conversation fizzles out. You know, we could be having a wonderful conversation about sports or whatever it is. Oh, what do you do? I'm a pastor. Oh. I need to go. Everything gets awkward. Almost instantly when people find out I'm a pastor, they, they take a few steps back from me. Like the atmosphere has completely changed. You know, like, like that fact made, it my, made who I am completely different. We've been talking about anything, having a good old time, excited, sharing, you know, uh, common, common things. And the moment I tell them I'm a pastor, they feel like they need to give me extra space. It's as if they found out that I have some dreadful disease that is incredibly contagious, and so now they have to keep distance from me. What I've also noticed is how much they change in how they speak. All of a sudden, they're more conscious about the language that they're using. People begin to apologize left and right for using harsh and vulgar language. I can't tell you how many times I've heard the expression, pardon my French. You'd think I'd be an expert in French the number of times I've heard that, but... They're only concerned about apologizing when they realize that you're a pastor or when they find out that you're a Christian. Before that information was ever found out, they would let the profanities fly out of their mouths without any sort of concern of offending you. But when people find out that you're a Christian, they suddenly realize how bad their language really is. Because every other word is this profanity. And after that, oh, sorry, pardon my French. Oh, sorry. And they're apologizing left and right for the choice language that they're using. In Proverbs 28, verse 1, it tells us, it says, The wicked flee when no man pursueth. I've seen this play out in so many instances, both in myself and in those around me. After all, I am also undone. And am a man, as Isaiah said, of unclean lips before the presence of a thrice holy God. But the idea behind Proverbs 28 verse 1, where it says, The wicked flee when no man pursueth, is that the wicked get a sense of their sin and their guilt when they're around believers or pastors, even if they're not being called out for their sin. Sometimes pastors have a way of making people uncomfortable just by their presence. I was... um, and as we were serving in Florida in a church down there, we had gone out visit, doing some door-to-door visitation. And after we had done this, the pastor decided he's going to take a group of us men out for breakfast. So we go out for breakfast, and he sees, he sees some people that haven't been in church in a long time at the restaurant. And so he says, oh, we got to go talk to them. And I'm thinking, this is not going to go well. And I'm walking behind him. I don't know who the people are because we're relatively new to the church. And he just goes and he stands right in front of their table. And you could see them squirm. It was the funniest thing. He didn't even say a word. Didn't even say a word. 
And they're squirming. The presence of the pastor just makes people nervous. All of a sudden, they realize how long they haven't been in church. They all of a sudden realize how long it's been since they've talked to him. Everything just kind of floods their mind about the things they haven't been doing that they should have been doing. It's amazing the way this plays out. I, I, I see this so often when I'm talking to people on the phone or when I run into people at the store. I see this, and it's almost comical to see the responses I get. It's the same way. Uh, all of a sudden, when, when people see my phone number on the caller ID, they, they scramble. They figure, okay, I got to come up with an excuse as to tell the pastor why I wasn't in church today. And they get uncomfortable. And the funny thing is, is that I don't even have to say anything about it. I don't have to say anything about it. I, you know, I'm just calling to make sure you're doing okay. Oh, well, this is the reason we weren't in church. And, and the week before, well, here's why we weren't in church. And then the week before that, here's why we You doing okay? Can I be praying for you for anything? Okay. Thank you for sharing why you've been gone the last six months. Thank you for allowing the guilt of just seeing my phone number and the call I need to consume you. Just wanted to see how you're doing. I, I run into people purely out of coincidence at the store sometimes. And it's so funny the way they responded, like I planned it. You know, like I was spying on their house. Okay, they're going to be at Walmart. Let's go right to Walmart and let's see if we can run into them. Oh, what a chance meeting this is. They act like I planned the whole thing. Oh, good to see you, Pastor. Well, you know, I've been really busy with work and then my grandkids came over and then I was out of town for a few weeks on vacation and then, you know, I got this cold that came over me and, you know, all these things just hit me once after once and that's why I haven't been in church for six months. I just said hi. Just said hi. It's amazing how much guilty people will squirm when they realize their guilt. And many times the realization comes without anyone verbally pointing it out. The wicked flee when no man pursueth. In the same vein, Martin Luther once said, he said, the pagan trembles at the rustling of a leaf. The pagan trembles at the rustling of a leaf. And I believe that statement is true, but not just about pagans. I believe it's about all that are guilty. Uh, when we realize our own guilt, we feel that everyone is on to us. We feel that every passing glance, we feel that every little whisper, surely they're, they're aware of what I've done. Surely they're, they're talking about me. That look was directed at me. I just know it. And it has nothing to do with you. Nothing to do with you. But many of us tremble, tremble at the rustling of a leaf we, we flee when no one is pursuing because the guilt that consumes us. We feel that every passing glance, every little comment, every little gesture is directed our way and it makes us so incredibly uncomfortable. So much so that when we're around a pastor, when we're around fellow Christians, we feel crowded by holiness. It's like we can't breathe. There's too much of it. I just need to get away. Even if it's made present by an imperfect, partially sanctified human vessel. Suddenly, Peter's reaction to Jesus, once that massive haul of fish was caught, seems appropriate for us to cry out, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. People are overcome with fear of holiness all the time. Whether through an imperfect, partially sanctified human vessel, through the word of God, or even from God himself. Holiness has a way of sparking fear that causes even the strongest and most proudest people to be broken and to feel undone. And what we find is that the greater the holiness, 
the more people become hostile towards it. It seems ridiculous to even say this, but just consider the life of Christ. Because no one on earth was ever and will ever be more holy than Christ. Christ was perfect holiness through every moment of his life. He was more loving. He was more compassionate. He was more merciful. He was more gracious than any other person who has ever lived and will ever live. And yet he made more people angry than ever before. Doesn't seem to add up. In fact, he's still making people angry today. And he's not even walking and talking like he was in the New Testament days here on earth. His love was a perfect love. His love was a transcendent love. His love was a holy love. But this love brought fear to people. The love of Christ is so wonderful and it's so majestic that we just can't stand it here on earth. We can't stand it. It's too much for us. It's hard to believe that the love of Christ would be so beyond amazing, so profound, so indescribable, that it would actually strike fear in the hearts of those who are the object of God's love. How backwards is that? Christ's love is so intense that it seemingly crushes the objects of its affection. It seems completely backwards that the love and the holiness of God would actually strike fear in our hearts. But that is often the case as we stand before the presence of such majesty and such glory and immediately become fully aware of the depths of our sin. It leads us to feeling completely undone and unable to even remain in the presence of someone so holy and so perfect. This is why the world couldn't tolerate Jesus. The Pharisees realized this in the New Testament. That's why they conspired to kill him. The world today is no different. We need Jesus more than ever today. But we cannot tolerate Jesus. At least not too close. We need to keep him at a distance. We can only stand to, stand to tolerate Jesus at arm's length or even further. With Christ being too close, we're too fearful. We're too uncomfortable. It, it makes us too uneasy. We feel crowded by his holiness, crowded by what his word has shown us, crowded by what he requires of us. It's too much. We feel so much better just having small doses of Christ. And even then, we do our best to still keep him at a safe distance. After witnessing the greatness of Christ rebuking the wind and the sea, Mark 4.41 tells us the response of the disciples. It says, And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? When seeing the greatness of, of Christ miraculously catch two boatloads of fish, Peter cried out, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. They all caught a glimpse of the holiness of Christ up front, and this is how they responded. There was the guilt of their sin. There was the fear of holiness that consumed them in the presence of Jesus. You fast forward 2,000 years to where we are today, and I can guarantee you that Christ would not survive a day, one day. He would not survive one day with the hostility of people that would be towards him in today's culture. He wouldn't survive one day. In the New Testament days, killing Christ was viewed as good for the entire nation. That was nearly 2,000 years ago, and things have just progressively gotten worse to where we are today. Do you think it would be any better today for him? 
what do you think would happen to Jesus today? The world cannot handle such awesome holiness without trembling in fear. Sometimes catching a glimpse of God's holiness leads us to run from him like Peter was trying to do. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Sometimes God's holiness brings hostility like the Pharisees wanting to kill him. But without fail, the fear, the fear of holiness is what we are left with. Because when such majesty and such glory comes before us, there is no other response for us to have than to be overcome. Overcome in awesome wonder. Our God is so, more, so much more amazing than we can ever fathom. And we've gotten just a glimpse of the holiness of our Savior here today. And I pray that with that, we'd have a greater appreciation for who our Savior is. Would you bow with me in prayer here this morning? Lord, we know that the response from the disciples, Lord, whether here in Mark chapter 5 or Mark chapter 4 or Luke chapter 5, the Lord is, is a response that we have made ourselves, Lord, questioning who you are, what kind of a person you are, whether or not you even care about us. Lord, I pray that we've had the response of Peter more, where we recognize that in your presence we are so sinful and not worthy of being in your presence. But Lord, I pray that that would generate this fear of holiness, this awesome majesty and reverence towards who you are the greatness of your power and might and would lead us to run to you more often to catch glimpse upon glimpse upon glimpse of the glory, Lord, that just emanates from you and from your word. Help us in this journey of life, Lord, to be faithful followers of you, to hold your word as our standard of faith and practice, to live each day to bring honor and glory to you. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.